Uh, we're in a series through the, the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, and today we have a really, um, I don't know, interesting topic that neither of us really want to talk about, but um, here we are as a church gathered together, and what we want to do today is, is engage with and um, speak about the scriptures in a way that's maybe a little bit unique um, from what we normally do as we're both up here, and we're going to jump into a topic, the topic of judgment and hell that uh, is actually really difficult to talk about and really difficult to uh, engage with. So as much grace as you can give to us as we try and be faithful to the scriptures would be appreciated, and we hope that today is really the beginning of a conversation that continues over the next several hours, but also over the next couple days and weeks and months and the entire life of us as a church. And, and, and we won't speak for hours, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just to clarify yeah. that. So if you have a Bible, if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 13. So if you have a Bible with you or an app, if you open up to Matthew 7. Uh, we, last week, um, you know, we've just been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And where we get today, uh, yeah, has, has some heavy topics in it. But let's read the words of Jesus together. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to your scriptures this morning and come to the words of Jesus, uh, we want to understand what you would communicate to us, uh, to us as individuals living in 2017 in Spokane, uh, but also to us as a church. Uh, we want to heed the warnings that Jesus gives uh, the original audience, and we want to be responsive to what he is, is communicating, what you are communicating to us in these words. And so, Jesus, as we turn to you and, and seek to understand what you're doing, would you give us soft hearts to receive and a willingness to respond in the ways that you would have us do it? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we're just going to jump right in, and today we are going to be talking about what Jesus talks about near the end of his sermon, which is um, the, the topic of hell. And um, if, if it's your first Sunday with us, um, wow, welcome. You sure um, picked a unique day to show up. Um, we've never talked about this before, but as we're finishing up our series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus ends his sermon by giving his disciples a clear warning about where our reality is headed. And so far, the message that's been conveyed is that God's kingdom is coming here and now in bits and pieces in and through Jesus. It's breaking into this reality as he's speaking. 
And that's good news. And um, as his audience would have known, and Jesus reinforces, the kingdom of God will come in full one day. And God's children, those who have trusted in him, will be ushered into an eternal age with him. And that's really good news. But, but the question um, that's kind of left lingering is, um, what about the fate of those who reject God? Um, what about the fate of those who maybe even hate God or want nothing to do with Jesus or his kingdom? And in order to understand that, we have to venture into this topic of hell. Um, and though none of us is, are excited about this topic, uh, it's important to note that Jesus actually talked about hell a lot, um, more than anyone else in the scriptures. And as we teach through the book of Matthew, uh, line by line and verse by verse, uh, this topic becomes uh, unavoidable. Uh, by teaching through a book of the Bible in that way, we are forced to wrestle with topics that we otherwise would avoid. Uh, and the topic of God's judgment is perhaps the greatest among them. So um, there are a few select churches out there, and maybe some of you have been a part of these churches, um, that are maybe too eager to talk about this subject and kind of go to it every time and use it as kind of this platform of, of, of fear and kind of um, getting people worked up. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, in the American evangelical church, I would say the topic of God's judgment and the topic of hell in particular uh, is kind of the elephant in, in the theological living room. Nobody wants to, to really talk about this. We, we, in all honesty, don't want to talk about it. Uh, we don't really want to uh, acknowledge it. I think the tendency in the church is to kind of uh, sweep it under the rug or explain it away. Um, but as we teach through the book of Matthew, it, it becomes unavoidable. And, and in fact, if you've been with us um, through the series since we planted a couple months ago, um, we've already encountered um, that this topic has come up multiple times in the book. For example, you might remember right near the beginning, um, John the Baptist uh, has these words to say. He says, he's calling the nation to repentance. And he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Very, very much like Jesus' words today. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Jesus, in this same sermon that we've been studying for the last couple of months, um, this is a sample of some of the things he has to say. He says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Please don't take that out of context. There's a lot of context, so listen to the podcast. But it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And granted, these are hooks that he's throwing out. We're not taking that at face value, but every time we've come across statements like these, and there are others, we've kind of set them aside and said, let's just focus on the topic at hand that Jesus really wants us to talk about, and we'll come back to this um, later in the series. Well, later in the series um, ha has now come, and so what we want to do today is kind of take the topic of hell um, head on. And uh, as Jesus, our, our teacher and our rabbi, uh, talks about the reality of hell or the themes of good and bad fruit um, or um, good and bad trees or the wide and narrow gate and all of that, um, we all have connotations that come up in our, in our mind, do we not? And, and I don't think they necessarily match. We all have um, kind of images and thoughts and feelings um, and, and connotations and associations that come up when we hear these. And, and the first question we need to ask ourselves is, are the ideas that are coming to our minds, are, are those from the scriptures and from Jesus, or are those from some other source? 
are those from, I, I figured this would happen, you know, once we started the topic. You guys can leave if you want to. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, but we, we want to question that, right? Are, are our images actually from the scriptures and actually from Jesus? Or are they from TV or, or from culture or from other um, places, from hearsay, or just something we invented in our minds? And so um, today, we want to step back as a community and wrestle with the question, um, what is the ultimate fate of those who reject God? It, and it's not a, a pleasant question to wrestle with. Um, But we know the fate of those who accept him, right? And we could do an entire series on the future kingdom of God, which will come in full, and what our experience might be there. And it would be amazing. So there's loads and loads for us to talk about and and, um, think about when it comes to those who accept God. But for a single day, we want to wrestle with the other side of the coin. Uh, and, and it's a difficult topic that no one really wants to talk about. But, but what happens to those who don't want any part in God's kingdom and who reject God altogether? And so um, what we want to do today in answering that question, there's a reason that, that two of us are up here. It's because we want to have a, a, a bit of a debate or a, a discussion around it. Uh, and there, there's a reason that we want to have the discussion in, in this fashion. As we approach the Bible... As anyone at any place uh, in in history has ever approached the Bible, there are going to be issues uh, of of biblical truth and biblical interpretation in in every place, in every culture. There there will inevitably be disagreement about what the Bible is actually saying. And so um, what we've developed is kind of, I mean, we didn't develop this, but what we use is is a hierarchical lens through which we approach um, biblical issues and biblical uh, disagreement. And, and it places all uh, kind of biblical issues into four categories. And those four categories are die for, divide for, debate for, and decide for. And some of you are familiar with these. You've heard us talk about them before. I'm guessing for most of you, you're, you're not familiar with this lens. Um, but it's fairly straightforward. You, you, you kind of get where I'm going with this. The, the, the top of the hierarchy are die-for issues, uh, meaning that there are select few issues that we as followers of Jesus um, would, would give our lives for. And the fact that Jesus is Lord, um, that he's God incarnate, the fact that he physically rose from the dead, um, these, these are central core beliefs that I, I, would, I would die before I gave up those beliefs. The, the next level down um, are divide for issues. And these are issues that we wouldn't necessarily um, die for, um, but they're important enough and that if we disagree on them, it's probably not going to make sense for us to worship together in, in the same community. And so, um, for example, if a, a pastor was preaching um, that... Um, fidelity uh, and, and sexual commitment was not, was not a part of marriage. That hey, even if you're married, the Bible is just really gray, so you can just kind of do whatever you want with whoever you want. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that pastor or the people who agree with him aren't like saved, but it's going to be difficult to impossible for us to worship in the same community together if that's the type of teaching that's being given. And so we have to politely and lovingly part ways. Uh, the issue is, uh, with the church globally, what we tend to do is escalate issues uh, up the hierarchy. Uh, we, we tend to take issues that maybe the scriptures don't even talk about very much, or that are very much gray issues in the scriptures, and we escalate them up. Sometimes we make them die for issues. 
And you read through the scriptures and you're like, they don't even really talk about that. And you're willing to like die on that hill. Um, but more commonly, they turn into divide for issues. And so denominations divide. We have so many denominations. Um, that, and, and they divide from one another. Churches actually split over issues. Missional communities split. Friendships split within the church. And there's all of this division um, over things that we really um, shouldn't be dividing for. Um, the church, a compelling vision we get uh, of the early church, and I think ultimately of the global church, what we're supposed to be, is very much a, a diverse but unified body. And so we're, we're unified by the very short list of die-for issues completely united in that, and as a result, there shouldn't be a whole lot going on in divide for. I mean, people can teach crazy things, but in, in, in a perfect world, we agree on the die for issues, and therefore, um, it, we're not dividing over everything else. Um, decide for issues at the bottom of the hierarchy are, are issues that the scriptures don't really say much about. And so as a community, we just have to decide. We just have to decide what we want to do. Uh, a lot of what we do is cultural. The scriptures don't say anything about doing a 40-minute teaching every Sunday or how many songs you should play or even that you should do musical worship. Um, all of that, that the type of crackers we use for communion. And these are things we just had to decide on. You can read through the scriptures and... I was going to say, or, the, or whether or not the carpet is uh, the right color or not. That's true. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't decide on this color Correct. of carpet, but yeah, that would, that's a great example. Thank you for en enriching us with that. Uh, but there's a lot of things that we, just, that we just decide as a community. What do we think will be best? And those are very much cultural. The, the, the third step on the hierarchy, debate for issues, are issues that are gray within the scriptures. They're not black and they're not white. And so there's actually room for us as a unified body, as a community, to debate, well, what do we think the scriptures actually mean? And we can actually hold different schools of thought on debate for issues and not divide uh, as a church. And so um, Karshi and I uh, have a handful, I think, of, of issues that we think are debate for issues and, and we kind of naturally lean in opposite directions. And even when we don't, then we kind of do on purpose. We're like, okay, why don't you take that side and, and I'll take this side, just so we can debate it. We love this. We've never done it publicly, so pray for us. Um, but we think that when it comes to the topic of, of hell and God's judgment, um, that there's enough gray area in the scripture that it's worth having the conversation as a community. And the goal really is for us to kind of wake up to um, maybe what the scriptures say and, and kind of draw us in and engage us in, in, in a bigger way. And so the, the conversation that we're going to have in the next few minutes is not to end the conversation. Because within this, the tendency, when we hit debate for issues, they really make us uncomfortable as a church. And so the tendency is, well, let's just pick a side. Even though it's gray, let's just come down on the side and say, force it to be black or force it to be white and give that to the church and say, if you don't agree with this, then you should divide or leave or whatever. Um, and, and we don't really see that as being a mature or godly unifying thing in the church. And so um, rather, than, rather than kind of cave to that tendency and say, let's just pick one and just make that our stance, um, we, we want to have these discussions uh, as a community. And so we hope um, that 
this debate for discussion will, will hopefully be done in, in, a, in a humble and mature way that actually um, helps us to understand the topic, but actually um, models how we can have these conversations in the future. And so um, what we're going to do today is present two different kind of schools of theological thought around um, the topic of um, God's judgment um, and um, ultimately what we call hell, the nature of hell. And the two camps that we're going to um, present on, in a sense, are um, eternal conscious torment, which is the traditional view that the church has held for, for a long time, um, and, and, and it's described in this way. It's God's just judgment of those who stand opposed to him, um, and it is an eternal punishment separated from God and all of his goodness. That, that's one school of thought, and, and Karshi is going to share on what they believe. And then I'll kind of be presenting another school of thought, which is called annihilationism, or conditional immortality, um, which says that the wicked and those who um, reject God will stand before him in judgment, face a, a, some kind of punishment correlated to their crime, so to speak, and then ultimately be destroyed or cease to exist. And, and the reason that this matters, a heavy topic, but the reason that this matters is that we want to have a, as clear a picture of we, as we can of what Jesus is talking about, and, and then allow that to actually help inform and shape our view of salvation, and, and actually inform and, and shape who God is and what he's up to uh, in the world, and, and really help shape our view of the mission of God and, and our role uh, in it. And so we believe that this is an important topic. And, and just so we're clear, um, these two schools of thought are not the only schools of thought uh, on this topic. Um, for example, um, there's another, um, what I would consider kind of growing or major camp that we're not going to discuss at length today that's called universalism. And universalism says that the ultimate end of the wicked for everyone is, re is ultimately repentance and salvation. Um, God's will is that none should perish and all should be saved, which is true. That, that second part is literally what the scriptures say, um, and we believe that. That is God's heart. He wants us to partner with him to that end, and he'll empower us toward that end. But they go further than that and say, well, who are you to say that God won't accomplish his will? Like, ultimately, at, at the end of everything, God's will must be accomplished and everything must be brought under him. And the way they envision that happening is that after death, we would have, oh, we can go back to the next one, actually. Um, after death, we, that all of, uh, every human who's ever lived has essentially unlimited chances to accept God's grace and enter uh, the kingdom of heaven. And so, given unlimited time and um, no real great alternative, uh, eventually, everybody will. Uh, that, that's kind of the theory behind universalism. And there's a lot more that we could say about that. Um, it's trending right now, and especially among the younger generation and in a culture of universalism in America, um, this is going to keep gaining more ground. Um, so you're gonna, if you haven't encountered this, you will. Um, but um, as a leadership team here, we, we don't really feel that this squares well with what the scriptures actually have to say and the things that we'll be studying today. Um, so if you've placed yourself in this camp, we want to start by saying um, that you should divide. No, I'm just kidding. We, we want to start by saying, um, really, really, truly, we want to say that you're welcome here, and we want you to be part of this community, and we want you to be part of the conversation. We believe these conversations are, are enriched by that. So don't feel like, oh, they're not talking about it, or they're not, you know, they said something negative, so I need to leave. That, that's the, the opposite of what we're trying to foster. 
Um, so feel free to join in the conversation. We just won't be saying much about it today. All of us in every camp want to be submitted to the scriptures in humility, wrestling with these issues um, together. And um, so that's what we want to do today. And, and we don't want past traditions or trending traditions to kind of hijack the conversation, but we want to see what do the scriptures say. And so um, with that, we'll get into um, what ECT is the short bird, the traditional view and annihilationism. Um, Karshi, why don't you get us started with the uh, traditional view? What do they believe about um, the, the ultimate fate? Yes. So uh, as Deason mentioned, central to the Christian view, and as, as we read this morning, central to the Christian view of the world is that Ultimately, each one of us, uh, we have a fate in one of two directions. So as Jesus said in, in verse 13, there's a wide gate that leads to destruction. And, and in verse 14, he says there's a narrow gate that leads to life. And, and if I'm being honest, I think maybe we've made this abundantly clear, but this is an awkward subject to talk about. Uh, this is an awkward thing to even think about. And uh, to spend a lot of time um, preparing for it this week, I, I know I think both of us were um, yeah, it was, it's a difficult thing to prepare for, not only because uh, it's an odd subject, but also because there's people that I know and I love who very well might experience an eternity separated from God in hell. And that, that's heavy, and that's difficult to even think about. So as, as I present the traditional view of hell, uh, what I, the definition I want you to have in your head is that hell is the place for God's just judgment against sin and the logical end state uh, for those who live their lives in, rebellions, in rebellion against God. So it's, it's both God's just judgment against sin and it's the logical end state for those who live lives uh, in rebellion against God. So uh, you may have heard this before, but the word translated in hell uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, really specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is this valley on the southwestern side of Jerusalem. So when Jesus uses the word, everyone listening has an idea of what he's talking about. And this place, Gehenna, was where during certain periods of time in Israel's history, people had sacrificed their children to foreign gods in Gehenna. So, so Gehenna, hell, had this connotation of this is the place where people worship foreign gods, where they, where they sacrifice children, and then they throw them into this valley. It, it, it's pictured as this terrible, horrible place. And later on in Israel's history, the prophet Jeremiah begins to associate the Valley of Gehenna not only with child sacrifice and worship of foreign gods, but also God's judgment. This is the place where, where the wickedness of humanity is made so clear that this is where God is going to judge humanity. And then in, in later Jewish writings around the time of Jesus, Gehenna gets, gets even more picked up on. The theme and the idea of this place uh, comes to be associated more and more as the place where God will judge. So it's weird to ask the question, but what is hell like? Um, Jesus talks about it a ton, and the, and the rest of the New Testament talks about it a lot as well. So, so it, we do ourselves no favor by just ignoring it, uh, but what, is this, what do the scriptures say? Well, it's clearly a place of, of judgment and punishment. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's really two main thrusts of description. One is that it's a fiery place, and there's a bunch of passages listed, but it's also described as a dark place, which should give us pause, because something with a lot of fire is not dark. 
And, and so the point that I want to make here is that how we conceive of the place physically is problematic. Most of us, when we use the word hell, we think about a, guy, a red guy with horns and a pitchfork poking someone with fire all around. Uh, maybe I'm alone in that. I, I, I went to Disneyland when I was a kid. This will make sense in a second. <laughs> I went to Disneyland when I was a kid, and um, Mr. Toadstool's Wild Ride. Anyone ever been on it? Okay. That ride scared the crud out of me because there's this scene where Mr. Toad is judged and sent to hell, and that's exactly the picture that you get. It's actually hot in the room on the ride, and it freaked me out. And, and the majority of my impression of what hell is like was informed by a ride at Disneyland for the majority of my life. And, and it wasn't until I really had to wrestle through these subjects that I came to really, really think about, well, what do the scriptures actually say? How we conceive of it physically is hard because Jesus uses, and the rest of the New Testament uses, metaphorical language. So it's both a fiery place, but it's also dark. What's the main point? It's not pleasant. It's not a good place. Secondly, uh, there's, there's this set of descriptions in the book of Revelation which talk about hell as this place that's an abyss or a deep pit, and it has the ability to be locked, and that it's a lake. So again, how we conceive of it as a physical place is difficult, but the point in all of this uh, is a couplefold. One, most of us think of hell as, as God's like Siberian gulag or his own little Guantanamo Bay where, where people are tortured and it's in the basement of the new heavens and people, the, there's these captors who look down through like a glass, glass floor and they look at people being tortured. That's what a lot of us think about when we conceive of hell. But instead of viewing hell that way, I think the way that the scriptures present it is hell is this place where the inhumanity of humanity, where the sin of humanity is laid before a court. It's laid before a tribunal. It's laid before a judge. And then fitting recompense, fitting punishment is carried out towards those who have sinned against the creator God. And the key point is that hell is about justice and not about torture. So many of us conceive of hell automatically. We think of torture, but it's about justice and not torture. One image I think we can maybe use is that hell is that dimension of, future, of the future reality where it quarantines evil. So, so just like the smallpox virus is, is stuck away in a little laboratory so that the smallpox virus can never get out, Hell is that dimension of the future reality where, where hell is quarantined. Evil is quarantined. Yeah, evil is quarantined in hell as the place where it can never get out, it can never escape. And, and if you remember back to that original uh, definition I gave you, it, it's, it's the logical end state of those who live lives in rebellion against God. Um, my best guess is that some will mourn their bitter state in hell, but they will still rage against the God who put them there. Because, like I said, hell is this logical end state for those who've lived lives in rejection and rebellion against God. Some people would rather reign in hell than serve God for the rest of eternity. Because that's what's marked their lives here. Defiance against the same God has marked their lives here on earth. That defiance in the age to come, defiance against that same God will mark what happens in the age to come. The, the important point is that Jesus' teachings about hell 
They're not like these rants of a madman who's like eager to see people punished. That's not how Jesus presents hell. Jesus presents hell as this, this warning, this urgent warning, calling people to repent and to change their path and get off the wide path that leads to destruction. And as I, as I hand the mic back over to Deason, I want to touch on three things as, as Deason presents uh, the, the opposite or another view. Um, I just want to share three reasons why I don't buy into that view. Um, I, going through seminary, part of the, the, the course of studies is engaging with debatable topics like this. And I so wanted annihilationism to be true. I, I really wanted that to be true for a lot of emotional reasons. Um, but there's really three reasons I, I ultimately could not come to an intellectual agreement with it. So first, uh, Matthew, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus presents another parable where he talks about the end, end state of humanity, and then he says, then they, humanity, will go away either to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So there's, there's two end states, right? The word eternal is used in both punishment and life. And if we translate the word eternal to mean unending when we're talking about life, like ongoing conscious experience of life, then, then it would break the rules of translation to say it means ongoing and unending when we associate it to life, but it means finite and final when we associate it to punishment. It would break the rules of translation if we make eternal mean two different things in the exact same sentence. Secondly, um, there's these passages in Revelation which uh, talk about the end state of Satan and all those associated to him. And, and there's, there's really clear language. In 1411, Revelation says that the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. It's this ongoing thing. And then, and then chapter 20, verse 10 says, uh, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. This is so weird to read. Into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So both of these images seem to communicate that Satan and those associated to him have this ongoing conscious experience of separation from God. And, and then lastly, I wanted to ask the question, what is, how, does Jesus describe, uh, how does Jesus describe judgment and how does Jesus describe the afterlife? Well, he talks about things like weeping and gnashing of teeth, which has always been a horrifying image for me. But weeping and gnashing of teeth, which Jesus talks about in chapter 13, in chapter 22, in chapter 24, in chapter 25, those are both conscious actions. Jesus also quotes this passage from Isaiah 66, uh, that's in Mark 9, where Isaiah talks about judgment and this place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Because normally when we think about fire, fire burns up the fuel. So if you throw a log on a fire, normally the log burns up and then eventually the fire goes out. But the image that Isaiah gives and then Jesus reaffirms is that the fire doesn't get quenched. It doesn't actually burn up what is burning. And then lastly, and I think the most problematic one, was uh, Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So in Luke 16, Jesus tells this parable of a rich man who has a beggar who lives at his front gates. And for his entire life, the rich man ignores the man in need right in front of his house. And, and Jesus tells this parable to point out that just because the man's rich doesn't mean he'll be judged as righteous in the age to come. And, and then Jesus gives us this picture of the rich man being in Hades, which is another word for hell, this rich man being in Hades, and the quote is, 
uh, in Hades where he was in torment. And, and the rich man calls out to Abraham and to Lazarus, who were on the other side, and he says, hey, will you come give me relief? And to me, that, that sounds just so clearly like conscious experiment, experience of that, that agony of being separated from God and his people. And so as I, as I worked through those things, those are some of the things that I found most problematic with annihilationism. Uh, but I'll give it back to Deason, and Deason will try and correct all that. All right. Um, so that was what we'd call um, eternal conscious torment theory or um, the traditional view. Um, I'm now going to present kind of another school of thought um, that is annihilationism. And I have no idea how to spell it. Um, But um, the the basic idea behind it um, is that the the final fate of those who reject God is, is the final and irreversible destruction of the wicked. So, and to use that, to continue on that metaphor, um, the smallpox is not quarantined, it's wiped out completely. Um, Evil is not condensed to one other place, it's permanently erased from existence altogether. Uh, Now, this idea of of the destruction, kind of final ends of the wicked, uh, can be traced uh, through the entire Bible, and is a heavy theme in the Old Testament in particular. And so as you're reading through the Old Testament, uh, you come across words like this to describe, to describe the final fate of the, the enemies of God. Um, they describe it as death, the end, destruction, ruin, perishing, or the fire that consumes. Uh, as you read through other places in the Old Testament, these are examples just from one psalm, a, a little snapshot of the way the Old Testament talks about their fate and the wicked will be cut off and be no more. They will perish and then vanish like smoke, as in like no more existence. You cannot find them, you cannot see them, or be all together destroyed. Um, Which, if you take a step back and think about it, it is a little bit ironic, because this is what most uh, atheists believe will happen to them anyways. They don't believe that God is real, um, they don't believe that they'll stand before God and give an account of their lives, but they do believe that will be their ultimate fate. And I believe that um, the Old Testament is right in line with that same tone. Um, dozens, if not hundreds of those types of examples. Um, as you get to the New Testament, Jesus also talks about the fate of those in, in rebellion against God, and he talks about it most commonly in terms of destruction, including the passage that we read today, which said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, destruction being the end, dismantled, cease to exist. And he, he even says at one point, um, hey, um, you should, you should don't, be, don't let men, the, the opinion of people govern you. You shouldn't be afraid of them. You should, you should be aware of, your awareness should be on God. You should live life before him because he has the ability to destroy body and soul in, in Gehenna. Meaning not like part of you is there and part of you is not like all, all of you, holistically, um, which, which implies um, finality, not endless existence. As we move um, past the gospel accounts and into the rest of the New Testament, Paul says things like their end is destruction, and Peter says they're condemned to extinction. Um, and so what we see, kind of overwhelmingly, the majority of verses cover to cover um, it, it are in line with this idea of, of ceasing to exist. You, you, you did not accept the offer to step into God's eternal life, and so now you, you will no longer um, exist. And even as we get to the very end of the scripture, uh, as, as Karsh talks about in Revelation, 
We get glimpses of humanity's ultimate future there. Uh, And Revelation speaks of the righteous being raised to eternal life, um, but the, the, the wicked, those in rebellion against God, being raised for the purpose of judgment and what they call the second death. So you're raised before God, judged, and then... That, and, and when that time is over, whatever that looks like, then it's done. Um, and so the argument would be that these are different fates. They're, they're opposite, but not equal in um, duration. Uh, and that death implies something, implies a permanent end, unless God decides to give life and raise um, someone from death to life. And so you've got these verses, uh, which at first glance seem to cause trouble for annihilationism, which say things like, well, um, the worm never dies, or the fire is never quenched, or the smoke rises forever and ever. Um, But the point of these and the annihilationist view isn't that it's an eternal human, that you are an eternal creature that then is forced to experience these things, um, but rather that the punishment of destruction is itself a permanent one. It, it, that these things, that, that the fire will not be put out until it's done its job and it's finished. Fire in the, in the ancient minds, in the annihilationist view, would have signaled consumption and destruction, the end of something, they wouldn't have, in, in the annihilationist view, they wouldn't have associated it with like pain. We think of it with like pain. They would have said, no, it just consumes its object, and that object then ceases to exist. Uh, and so there are uh, some, some tricky, oh, before we get to the, the, the hardest verses, um, the, the, the punishment is a permanent one which means that God will, will raise those who trust him into new life, into eternal life, um, and, and will not do the same favor for those who experience the second death. Meaning like once that's done, um, th- this flies in the face of universalism. Once that's done, it's done. When, once these destructive things have done their, their job of, of cleansing the world in order for the new heavens and the new earth to arrive, he's not going to change his mind later. It's not like more time's going to go by and he's going to say, oh yeah, and also new life again, or, and again and again being extended um, to, these, to those who, who don't want anything to do with God and don't want anything to do with uh, the kingdom. And so when the scriptures speak of um, everlasting um, contempt or even everlasting punishment, the annihilationist argument is that the, the Greek word that's used here for everlasting when used in this context is actually talking about the permanence of the result and not the ongoing process. Does does that make sense? That when we're talking about, hey, it's done, that was your punishment, you cease to exist, like many people who reject God believe they they will, and that punishment is eternal in the sense that it is irreversible and will not be undone. It was a punishment given and it won't be undone for the rest of eternity. Uh, and, And that's a big deal, um, but it doesn't carry the same connotations as, um, as sometimes we think it would. So there are some tricky verses like the ones that Karsh talked about from Revelation that speak of kind of this ongoing awareness of separation from God or of punishment. Um, but when you go back and look at those verses, the annihilationist argument is that those don't actually involve humans. Um, the, one that, the one single verse that is the most clear in Scripture is actually talking about Satan, the source of all evil, the one who's plunged the world into chaos and darkness, causing unspeakable pain, and, and the other angelic beings associated with him. And so what God does with them, and for how long, that's, that's an issue 
um, that we can speculate about or read into based on that verse. But the annihilationist argument, we well, that doesn't actually involve human beings at all, even evil, evil human beings that partnered uh, intentionally with Satan for that end. And so the argument would be that human beings are not eternal creatures. That, that's not our nature. We, we are temporal, mortal creatures who have been given the opportunity to be invited into the eternal life that God has within himself. This is something that we opt into, that we choose uh, to accept. We aren't born as eternal creatures. So if you think back to Adam and Eve in the beginning of the scripture, they were not subject to death in the garden or sin. One, because of the presence of God, but just as importantly, they had access to something called the tree of life. And when they rebelled against God, their punishment was actually be, uh, to, that they were barred from the tree. That this thing that was giving them eternal life from God, they were then cut off from that life. And only then were they kind of these mortal beings that were subject to sin and decay and death. And then the ultimate end of the scriptures, the, the, the reality that Jesus, is, Jesus shows up on the scene, he's saying, hey, I'm inviting all of humanity back into life, back into this place of blessing. And ultimately, when you read the very last chapter of the scriptures, the future he's, he's ushering us into is that we then regain access to the tree of life and the life that is in God. The scriptures say some amazing things about Jesus. And these are just a few of them. It says that everything was made through him and for him. It's all about him. And in him, we live and move and have our being. In other words, and this is important, the universe is only possible because it is plugged into God. It, God, God powers it. God sustains it. Um, and, and so he sustains the righteous and the wicked. Right now, in this moment, he's left room. He's sustaining all of us. And the scriptures talk about that, especially in the Old Testament, that he's sustaining both, which means that he also sustains all um, spiritual beings, good and bad, um, and that, that everything that exists is actually deriving its life from God. God's the ultimate reality. So if God pulls the plug, nothing else will exist if that was his will because it's all dependent on him as its source of, of power, so to speak, as its source of, of life. And here's why this is important. Because it, human beings, um, and really any beings, we can only endure as long as God in his love and his mercy wills that, that we endure. Um, and, and so we, we are not eternal creatures by nature, I think that's actually a Greek idea. And the annihilationists would argue that's a Greek idea, not a biblical one. You are not an eternal creature. And so as we look back into history, uh, what we actually see uh, and can document is that many of the earliest church fathers, which we call the apostolic fathers, including um, the, the men on this list, most of their names I can't pronounce, um, but for those of you who are into church history, many of these early church fathers all uh, made written, um, did written works that either implicitly or explicitly placed them in this um, annihilationist camp. And so, and, and if that's true, we're talking about these guys spread out over the first couple centuries of voices saying, yeah, this is actually kind of how we see things. Um, Constable did a comprehensive study of the early church and concluded that, hey, right from the beginning, 
they, they espouse views which actually confront universalism and would confront the views later, um, uh, later um, championed by Augustine and others uh, that we would call ECT or the traditional view. And so um, in, in, in this, from, from my perspective, from the annihilationist worldview, all of these guys were kind of this consistent line of, hey, this is what we believe. This is kind of how we interpret the scriptures. And then you've got this guy at the bottom, uh, Athanasius, who's a brilliant guy in the 4th century. And by the time we get to the 4th century, you have Athanasius, who starts kind of um, quoting Plato, a hugely influential figure. He's quoting Plato, but not agreeing with him. Uh, he doesn't like get to the same end results that Plato does, but he's kind of like, quoting him. And then after that, um, what an annihilationist would, would say is kind of the dam breaks open. And we get this wave of platonic thinking that just washes over the church and washes this doctrine right out to sea. Uh, and so from that point forward, and then you get Augustine who wasn't the first, but really championed this idea of the eternal, uh, eternal human soul. Um, and from that point forward, you have over a thousand years of that being kind of the, the traditional view of the church. Um, and, and, and so I think that the, the annihilationist um, theory, I think, is actually much more historical than we often give it credit for. Because if we had 2,000 years of church history and then, oh, this new theory came up, uh, uh, I think we should be really weary of that. Um, but I, I think it's more uh, historical um, than, than we'd like to think. And sometimes, from, from the annihilationist perspective, I think the, the church is still struggling with, with platonic thinking, um, over biblical thinking within the church. And, and my fear is that sometimes we hear Plato more clearly than we hear the scriptures. So that would be the argument from that side. And, and if that's true, uh, that human beings are not inherently eternal creatures, but rather creatures invited into the eternal life of God, then anyone who rejects that gift um, would actually have to be actively sustained by God uh, in another place in order to experience some other reality apart from him. And we don't really have time to get in this conversation, in, into this, this next topic, but I think it would probably be fair to ask if, we feel, if that looks like it's in line with the character of God that we see in the rest of, of the scriptures. Um, so, we don't really have time to get into that today, um, but as we end, ultimately, um, both sides and, and both of us agree uh, that God is not bloodthirsty or vindictive, um, that, that God is actually more loving than we are, that God is actually more just than, than, than we could ever be. And so as we have these conversations and as we kind of, in this case, have kind of more of a debate, um, we're all ultimately submitted to the scriptures and ultimately submitted to trusting God, so that God... Maybe we don't understand it all. Maybe we don't agree on, on all the details. Um, but ultimately, we, we trust you. We trust in your character. We trust in who you are. And so I, my hope is that this conversation actually lands us in a place of kind of propelling us deeper into the scriptures, um, deeper into conversations with one another on this topic and others, and, and ultimately into a deeper place of, of missional urgency. Uh, as a church and as individuals. Because what we can all agree on and all conclude after kind of reading and studying the scriptures is that uh, in some form or fashion, hell is a reality. And, and I love the heart behind universalism. And, and honestly, it would be great if the support was there and we could just jump on board and, and agree with it. I think we kind of wish that was true. Uh, but I also think that Jesus and others throughout the scriptures 
had this sense of urgency when it, when it came to rescuing human beings and, and that partnering with God in, to that end was worth everything they had to give. When they saw the full picture, they said, yep, I'm in. I, I'm, I'm for you, God. I'm with you. I want to be on your mission to the world. This is, this, is the most, this is it. This is the most important thing. And so it's in that context, no matter which um, camp you, you identify with, the truth is that we get to bring the beauty of Jesus uh, into a world that is bound by death, um, that is stuck in sin, that is on a wide path um, leading to a place that um, you wouldn't want to go. And so um, you, you, you don't have to, and, and we get to bring that truth, that you don't have to. You don't have to die and face destruction or face uh, something else that's there um, or any type of awareness apart from God, but you are invited purely by God's grace to share in his eternal life, to step back into a place of blessing, um, back into a place where we have access to the tree of life, where Jesus rules and reigns as our eternal king, where we are completely restored inside and out, set free in the unending love of God for all eternity. This is, this is the glimpse that we get. John says, then I saw, this is his vision of the future, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea or chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And in the very next line, Jesus says, Look, I am making everything new. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old will be wiped away. All will be brought to justice. We will be liberated from sin and death. You will be more free in this place than you could possibly imagine beyond anything you have ever experienced. Paul said the sufferings, of, and he suffered, the sufferings of this life are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. It, it, God's saying it's going to be worth it. Everything you endure in this life, everything that's yet to come, in, in, in judgment, it, it's worth it to, to create this place where his children will dwell with him. And so as we close, uh, our response is really simple. It, it's twofold. First, we, we praise God. We, we celebrate that he has rescued billions of people from whatever life would be like outside of his kingdom. Billions. And, and so the fate that we were deserving, the wide path that, that all of us were on, he, he found us there. And yet rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in love, he, he went to the cross, which we're about to celebrate, and, and threw the door wide open. So we rejoice that we've been rescued. We rejoice that God's heart is for every single human being to be rescued. And, and, and it's with that 
urgency, the same urgency that Jesus had, with the same love that Jesus had, we, we live in full view of where reality is heading. Uh, with the reality, there's a path uh, that, that, that leads to destruction, and many are on it, but there is a path that leads to eternal life, and every single man, woman, and child in existence is invited onto that path. Let's pray.